You can turn your Bibles again to Revelation chapter 18 this morning. And uh, as we begin our study, you may be thinking, well, what in the world does this, from our scripture reading, what does this have to do with Christmas time? This church is weird. Well, there was a mention, if you were paying attention there, Revelation 18, verse 13, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, and frankincense. I mean, that's kind of Christmas, right? Well, I guess that'll be about as close to Christmas as we get in this passage. Sometimes there are uh, passages in the Bible that the kind of the message the the sermon, if you will, just it's just right there. It's obvious. It's easy. Other times, it might be a little more concealed. But and this is probably one of those passages. So the title of our message this morning is "How Not to Mourn Over Sin." A lot of times in the Bible, there are positive examples of of uh, people and events in history that are easy to easy to follow. The so-and-so does something great. Like a few weeks ago, we talked about Hezekiah and how he was, uh, I think that was actually in Sunday school, but Hezekiah was a, a man of faith, a king in Israel, one of the few good kings in Judah, and he was a man of faith and he applied the things that he learned and it showed in his life. Great, perfect example. And it, today in our study... We are in Revelation chapter 18 in this destruction of Babylon, and we see these people weeping and mourning and throwing dust on their heads and just in almost seemingly physical pain over an event that happened in their life. And that event is this future judgment that is coming to the city of Babylon that we have been studying about. And there's one item, there are several things that that we'll get to, but we see that it's very obvious that their weeping and their mourning has nothing to do with the sin that was in their lives, but it has everything to do with the the physical goings-on in their life. And we'll get more into it uh, as, as we get there. This is not how to mourn over the sin that is in your life. So we'll take a look at that as we go. Keeping in mind, of course, that there is a blessing that is available to those who study, read, and heed this wonderful book of Revelation. It's not just a book that's telling us about the future uh, and so that we can know, you know what to watch out for. Oh, did you see that Emmanuel Macron said that, that he's calling for one world government? Oh, isn't this exciting? And these kinds of things. It's not just for that. It is for us. It is this book, the book of Revelation, is for you and for me, for believers to be blessed, to be encouraged, to live for the Lord today. Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. It should be painfully obvious to us 
as we look around at the world in front of us, that the time of the Lord's coming judgment is drawing closer and closer every single day. If you just pay any attention at all to the news and current events, you see the stage is being set for the book of Revelation to be fulfilled. So we find ourselves, we've been studying this obviously for quite a while. I think this is the 68th or 69th message in Revelation. So we've been at this for over a year. Actually, kind of, if I'm honest, it's going faster than I thought it was going to go. Uh, And we find ourselves coming actually to the conclusion of the period of the book that makes up the body of this letter from Revelation 6 all the way through Revelation 19 is talking about this future seven-year tribulation period that the world faces because of sin. God cannot abide sin. He cannot live with sin. So it has to be completely, fully, finally dealt with in this world before he can live with people. That is his intention. We talked about this morning in Sunday school, the, the creator-creature distinction. God has created this world. He created it out of nothing in six literal 24-hour days, according to the scriptures, with the intention of living on this earth with people. That's what he's doing in Genesis Two and the beginning of Genesis 3, God himself, the creator, is living with humanity on this earth. But sin came into the picture. And so God has to deal with sin before he can live again with people. And we see the conclusion of God dealing with sin in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, lays out for us Many, if not most or all of the important events, every, every single thing that's going to happen in the tribulation isn't here. So if you read books or watch movies like the Left Behind series, you know, there's some drama added in there. That's not all straight from, from the Bible. That's a dramatic presentation of the important events that will take place that we find here in the book of Revelation beginning in chapter 6 and all the way through 19. So we've seen that these are future events. These events have not taken place as they are described in the Bible, beginning with the seal judgments. That is the beginning of the tribulation period when the Lord breaks the first seal on that scroll, then a pseudo-peace will come to the earth so people get really excited about the tribulation coming when there's war. And well, that's sort of exactly the opposite of what the Bible tells us. It's, begun, it's going to begin with a period of peace. And then we study through all of those seal judgments. Next will come war and then famine and uh, great death due to disease and all of these various things. There's going to be martyrdom During that time period, the fifth seal judgment, believers being martyred because of the word of God. We're not talking being kicked off Twitter or Facebook, ending your life 
because of the word of God and having faith in God's word. And then there's going to be great signs in the, in the heavens. Then that moved on to the trumpet judgments were next after an intermission period that we got some highlights of things that will take place during the sealed judgments, things that will take place during uh, the future parts of this tribulation period. Then the trumpets come along, trumpet judgments, and then bowl judgments come along. And that's what we are studying now, the very end of the bowl judgments with the destruction of a literal city, Babylon. That's chapter 17 and 18 that we're going to try to try to finish off this morning. Chapter 18, this great lament that is borne out over the destruction of this city, Babylon. So we've been we've spent quite a few weeks studying this future Babylon, and we'll do some review because it's been said that a genius needs to hear things 28 times before it is instilled into their minds. And I don't know about you. I don't consider myself a genius by any stretch. So maybe a 29th time isn't bad for us to have the uh, reminder about what Babylon is here in the scriptures, so that when we hear things from other places, we'll know, wow, boy, that's not quite right. That's not what the Bible literally says. And that's, that's what we're after. And we'll get more into that as we go. So, but first, we'll begin with a reminder about the great city Babylon. You heard that several times during this lament, all three groups of people here that are lamenting over Babylon mentioned the great city Babylon. So what is that? Just so we can be reminded. We'll look at their mourning, what it is, what it isn't, and then we'll take a look at what true repentance is. A true understanding of, of sin and how we as believers and People, perhaps, who are unbelievers need to react to their sin, what it, what it actually is. But we begin with the great city, Babylon. Revelation 18, 9 and 10 says, The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her. Note it, there's, there's the sin part being, we're being reminded of will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. We have spent a considerable amount of time studying Babylon here in these chapters because, well, that's what the chapters are about this city, Babylon. And if we don't understand what Babylon is, and unfortunately, we also have to understand what it is not, because so much of what we see in on the internet and from even popular Bible teachers and these kinds of things, uh, they're not hitting the nail on the head with what Babylon actually is. One of the principles of Bible study is that we don't just get to make up the answers for what words are out of our own thinking, 
that, that gets us into trouble really quickly, and we'll see that at the end here. Uh, the importance of a literal understanding of the Bible and how if we don't apply it in one place, man, we are getting on to a slippery slope where we can just start applying our own thinking to other places, and that has great consequences. So Babylon in the Bible, this isn't the first time, Revelation 17 isn't the first time that we've that we come across a city called Babylon. So it behooves us to go back in the scriptures. And if we don't know what Babylon is, well, maybe we ought to put it in the search bar of our electronic Bible there and kind of look it up and see, well, what does the Bible actually say about this city, Babylon? And, and when we do that, we find that, it, that it's quite old the city of Babylon has been there for, for quite some time. It is originally mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, so we're talking shortly after the flood. Uh, Genesis 10 is a listing of kind of the descendants of Noah and his three sons. And so these are the original people who are repopulating the earth after the flood, and it mentions this man Nimrod. Genesis 10 and verse 9, Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. That is, that is the Hebrew term that we translate in English and say Babylon. Every, every time you see uh, Babylon in your English Bible, it is actually the Hebrew word Babel. Same, same term. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ur and Kala. So this man Nimrod that phrase, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. There's some discrepancy about exactly what that means. Does that mean he was out on opening morning with his bow and arrow ready to shoot the deer? Or does that, he probably was, but at the same time, there's some kind of uh, not really uh, perfect understanding of what that phrase means. Was he a hunter before the Lord? Like, yeah, the Lord looked down and said, oh yeah, there's Nimrod. He's, he's my hunter. Or does it mean that he was one who was kind of hunting the Lord and he was hunting people who are for the Lord is, is a possible connotation there in that phraseology. In other words, Nimrod wasn't, he wasn't a great guy for the Lord. And he is the one who built this city, Babel or Babylon, originally. And oh, by the way, he also built Nineveh in Assyria. And so if we know our Bible history, we know essentially that God used two nations to specifically judge the Israelites after it became obvious that they were rebelling against him. He used the nation of Assyria headquartered in Nineveh to judge the 10 northern tribes. And he used Nebuchadnezzar and a kingdom known as Babylon or Babel to judge 
the southern kingdom, Judah. And so, and that all comes, both of those cities come from this man, Nimrod, who founded the city of Babylon. And in Babylon, we have kind of the beginning of this one world spirit, if you will. Genesis 11, 1 through 4, a passage that we have studied or looked at several times in this study of Babylon, because it is here where we get the idea that the world wants to come together in rebellion against God. And that began in Babylon, Genesis 11, 1. If you remember, after the flood, God said that he told Noah that I want you and your sons and their wives to spread out throughout the entire world. Uh, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, uh, so there is uh, Bible knowledge, if you will, the word of God going out to people. So what should we do? Well, I think we ought to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That would be a biblical worldview. That would be following what God wants you to do in your life. He tells you in his word, through his word, to directly do something, you do it. What did humanity do? Genesis 11.1, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. Oh, isn't that where Nimrod was? Shinar, remember that? And settled there. They said to one another, come, let us burn, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Genesis 10 already told us who was the one in charge of building this city, Nimrod. And let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So humanity led by this man, Nimrod, says, let's build our own city. Let's not do what the Lord says. Let's settle right here we can become so powerful that we won't need God. In fact, we'll just make this giant tower. We'll make ourselves God. We'll follow our own rules. We don't need to do what God says. And that, and we can be one people with our own set of rules and regulations. Sort of reminds you of the uh, Respect for Marriage Act. We can make our own rules about what marriage is. In spite of what the Bible says, we don't care what God says about marriage and family. We want to make our own rules. And oh, by the way, America isn't the only one doing this. It is the entire world who is engaging in in this disrespect for God's word and God's plan for the world. Sounds a whole lot like what's going on in Genesis chapter 11, led by this man, Nimrod. And so here we go. Here's another uh, fast forwarding several thousand years into the future. This same city, Babylon, is used by God to punish Israel. Second Kings 24, 20, getting right, skipping all David and all of the kings and moving right to the 
right to the end after their disobedience. Uh, for through the second Kings twenty four twenty for through the anger of the Lord, this came about this destruction of Jerusalem. This came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence and Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. That the second Kings 24 is describing how Babylon comes to Jerusalem and punishes them and all of these things came about through the anger of the Lord because the Israelites had disobeyed him in following uh, the law, essentially. And so this city of Babylon is not just something that appears out of nowhere in the book of Revelation. There's a history it is the very place where man decided to rebel against God on a, on a worldwide scale and all people to come together in rebellion against God. And God has a very symmetrical way of dealing with the world, if you will. So if the rebellion against God began in a literal city created by Nimrod, built by Nimrod and his people, to, for the direct express purpose of rebelling against God, it makes sense that in the end, there will be a literal city built by someone in a direct, absolute, complete rebellion against God in an effort to completely cast him out of the world and live in a world of our own making. And that's precisely what the Bible describes in Revelation 17 that this that the headquarters of this one world government, one world empire, if you will, that will have complete and total control over this earth is going to be headquartered in a city called Babylon. Revelation 17, 18 says, the woman whom you saw is the great city, if you'll remember the vision in beginning in Revelation 17, is this harlot sitting on a beast, riding across many waters. The woman, the harlot whom you saw, is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This city, Babylon, is going to be the headquarters of this one world government that is coming in the future. And so in uh, the book of Revelation, we see, we saw that the harlot is a city, Revelation 17, 18. The name of the city is Babylon, Revelation 17, 5. We have this picture of the harlot clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones in verse 4, pearls. You notice, if you'll remember from our scripture reading, all of those things were mentioned there as well as being destroyed. Well, this harlot has all of these things on her as her clothing, verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great is the name of the city. The name of the city is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. The name is not Mystery Babylon. The name is 
Babylon. If we include mystery, like if you have a King James, or I believe the New King James also, includes mystery as part of the title, then people will take license with that and say, oh, it's mystery Babylon, so therefore I can make it be whatever I want. It's Rome, it's New York City, it's Mecca, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing, and you've got to buy my book and watch my videos and come to my conferences, and I'll give you even more details about the mystery. Well, we spent and have spent, every time this term mystery comes up, we spend a lot of time studying it, and in the New Testament, we know that that is not a, a mystery like an Agatha Christie mystery, and we have to figure it out, gather all the clues and figure out what this is saying to us. No, the term mystery in the New Testament means there's a revelation of the truth. And if we just pay attention to the words on the page, the mystery is being revealed to us. And that, in fact, is exactly... What is happening here, the angel who is announcing these things to the apostle John even tells him that. Verse 7, the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. And that's essentially what most of the rest of Revelation 17 is about, is describing what the mystery is. And the mystery uh, is not the name. The name is Babylon. And there's nothing in the text here to indicate that it's anything other than Babylon. And of course, we know and have seen that even that good scholars make mistakes in this place, like Charles Ryrie. If you have a Ryrie study Bible, it's a great Bible to have. Uh, but in this particular case, the note, if memory serves, <laughs> on Babylon, it says, when you see Babylon, insert Rome. And you just kind of, what? <laughs> why, why would I do that? Why would I insert Rome when it says Babylon? When it, well, why can't I just say when it says Jesus or when it says I'm saved by faith, insert works instead of faith? Well, that, that would be rather jarring to us. And it ought to be rather jarring when we read something like, well, the word on the page says Babylon, but just insert Rome there. There's no reason to do that. When, when the Bible is speaking in the plain sense, makes sense, seek no other sense, as Dr. Cooper says. It says Babylon, it means Babylon. And oh, by the way, it makes perfect sense with the rest of the scriptures. Worldwide rebellion against God began in Babylon. It will end in Babylon, a literal city in modern day Iraq. That is where the headquarters, according to the scriptures, the headquarters for the one world government will be in Babylon in Iraq. And well, we, we could mention things like, do you think this city could be mentioned if a person like Saddam Hussein was the ruler of Iraq? Probably not. He probably has to be removed for some reason. There's stage setting events that are taking place. One tiny little baby step at a time. Sometimes there's bigger steps. Most of them are kind of small towards 
what the Bible says happening actually happening. And this is a literal city. We've seen in our study, there's a culture here, there's commerce here, there's a religion. This city is the mother of harlots. This is where uh, literal rebellion against God began here. They created their own religion. This city, it has it all. It has everything of a literal city. And so there's no reason for us to think that it's anything other than a literal city. And it's literally named Babylon. And it will literally and permanently be destroyed. We saw that very clearly in our scripture reading this morning. This phrase, you will no longer find them. It's repeated over and over and over again for us in case we didn't get it the first time. The Lord says it about six times in that passage. This city is going to be finally, permanently, completely, utterly destroyed so that no person will ever live there again. People live in Babylon today. People, a lot of people live in that area of the world. It is not completely, utterly destroyed as is described here in Revelation 18. Therefore, this must take place in the future. And so that just kind of brings us to this, the importance of a literal interpretation. Again, uh, it's just the normal meaning of words. If, if we received, this is the time of year where we kind of start thinking about taxes and that kind of thing. Uh, if we received a letter from the IRS, Uh, that's addressed to us and has our home address on it and our name properly spelled and we open it up and read it and it says we owe more taxes or we're going to be audited or this kind of thing. We wouldn't just say, oh, well, when they say audit, they mean I'm getting a big refund. When they say I owe more, that means I should expect a check. Uh, That's not how we read uh, anything. Actually, we don't, the, the reader doesn't make up the meaning. The author of the text makes up the meaning and communicates it to us, in this case, through the written word of God. God is the author of his word to us. We are the receiver. We are the interpreter, not the author. We don't make up the meaning We do our best to discover God's meaning that he is writing to us. And the best only way to do that is to use the normal meaning of words and how they are communicated to us. Uh, And if we don't believe that this is a literal Babylon, well, what about all the other cities that are mentioned? If you go back to Uh, Revelation chapter 2, there's a message to Ephesus. I mean, is that a message to Houston, Texas, or is that a message to Ephesus? I I would go with it's a message to Ephesus. And there's Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and all the other cities that are mentioned there. there. There's no reason to believe that those are anything other than literal messages to literal churches that existed in literal cities in the first century. There's another city that is mentioned uh, in the book of Revelation, a city by the name of Jerusalem. 
In fact, if memory serves, there's only one city in the Bible that is mentioned more times than Babylon, and that's Jerusalem, kind of the capital city of the nation of Israel, God's city. That's a literal place. You can literally go there today and see the sights. Uh, There's no reason for us to insert Washington, D.C. when we see Jerusalem in the Bible. Nobody would advocate that kind of interpretation of the scriptures. And so why would we apply that kind of thinking to Babylon? It is a literal place, a literal city, like the rest of the literal cities in the book of Revelation. So why why are we harping on this I have already kind of let the cat out of the bag. If Babylon isn't Babylon, where do we stop? And what what is about anything in the Bible? We can make anything or everything mean whatever we want in the Bible if Babylon isn't Babylon. And that is a very slippery slope to get onto. And You can see many, many examples of that. If you care to look at Christian news headlines today, the number of churches that are over the precipice and heading down in any number of areas because they aren't properly applying the truth of the scriptures. We see it manifesting itself kind of in the... the, uh, LGBT community or LGBT area of issues, uh, churches just rushing headlong into this area, not to pick on any group of people, but that's just the avenue that is, that is the most obvious example of this today of churches that are disregarding what the word of God says, not taking the normal meaning of words and applying them to our lives in the life of the church. And if we uh, skimp on Babylon, well, we're just kind of, you know, getting one little baby step away from the normal, literal meaning of the scriptures. And this has a massive importance in every area of the Bible. Like, for example, we're celebrating Christmas. Well, why are we celebrating Christmas? Christmas, because after all, you know, Jesus, uh, he, he was just a manifestation of a person, right? He wasn't really a human. I mean, he couldn't have been a, a human and lived a perfect life. Now, suddenly we're worshiping a Jesus who isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Now, all of a sudden we have a sacrifice for our sins who didn't pay the sacrifice for the sins of humanity, Only a human could do that. Jesus has to be both man and God in order to do the things that he says that the Bible (coughs) says. If we don't take a literal Babylon, maybe we could just say, well, Jesus was just a man. He's my favorite teacher. He's, he's just, he's my favorite prophet. And I'm just going to kind of follow him because he was a great martyr. That's not the Jesus of the Bible on the other side of the fence. Jesus was a man. He, he is a man. He is God in one person. And those two cannot be separated. Otherwise, 
we don't have the Jesus of the Bible, the one who died for our sins, the one who we worship, who is God, my God, your God, who died for us. And all of these things uh, show the importance of, to give it a title, dispensationalism. That's what dispensationalism is. Uh, is a literal meaning of the literal words that God is revealing to us in his word. And it, it applies to so much more than just, well, what is Babylon? What's this beast that this woman is riding on? It applies to everything, <laughs> everything in our lives. This issue applies to if we want to or expect to be Biblical Christians with a biblical worldview, well, we have to have the Bible and we have to apply it to our lives as the author wrote it to us. And so that's the great city Babylon. Now we can move into our actual text this morning and the morning. Notice the reaction of these individuals to this city. If you'll remember, the 10 kings who will have sway over the whole world, according to the vision that we have here in Revelation 17, this woman who represents the city of Babylon is riding on a beast. This beast has seven heads and ten horns, the seven heads were representative of the fact that this is kind of the, this end time kingdom is going to be the seventh kingdom that has sway over the world and the nation of Israel in particular. We saw uh, the seven kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, seventh being this end time kingdom. This, this beast also has 10 horns. Revelation 17, 12, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So that gives us the picture that the world in the end is kind of kind of be divided into 10 kingdoms. There will be 10 kings that are essentially ruling over the world with the Antichrist during this end time period. These 10 kings, verse 13 of Revelation 17, these have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. So they're going to just turn it all over to one individual and he is going to rule over the entire earth. And these 10 kings are going to actually be the ones who destroy the city of Babylon. Verse 16 of Revelation 17, the 10 horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot. They will hate the city of Babylon and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. So how is that all going to play out? I'm not exactly entirely sure how uh, 
the Lord is going to work that out. But at some point in the tribulation period, the 10 kings and the Antichrist will turn on this city of Babylon and destroy it. And that's what we're reading about here in Revelation 17 and 18. And so does that happen at the midpoint of the tribulation? Well, that kind of fits. That fits with the idea of the world turning from this religion. Babylon is the mother of harlots and kind of this one world religion, if you will. And Babylon being the center, it fits with what we see in Revelation 13 with this happening at the midpoint this destruction of Babylon happening at the midpoint fits with what we see in Revelation 13 when the Antichrist will set up an image of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And the world will be required on pain of death to worship the Antichrist and this statue which is in Jerusalem. So it makes a lot of sense that these 10 kings could turn on Babylon, destroy it at the midpoint, set up the image of the Antichrist in the temple in Jerusalem and begin outright satanic worship of the Antichrist. That makes sense. Problem with that is that this is describing the seventh bowl that happens at the end of the tribulation. It's kind of conglomerated together with the seventh bowl. So is it at the midpoint? Is it at the end? I'm not entirely sure. It could be either one, quite frankly. But the result is going to be this great mourning when this city is destroyed. Revelation 18, 9. The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning standing at a distance because of the fear of her tor torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city for your... In one hour, your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. So we see these two groups, and there, there could be three if you include the sailors uh, in as a, as a separate group. I kind of included them in the, in the merchants because they're, they're uh, weeping and mourning over this city are very similar. Notice that the kings of the earth had acts of immorality and, and they acted sensuously with this woman. Immorality is the, the Greek term porneo, and they also uh, committed striniao is the, the Greek term there for living sensuously. They were immoral and they lived sensuously through satisfying the, sen the senses with immorality is what is being pointed out there that these kings of the earth they're committing sin and sin is the reason for the judgment on this city the merchants of the earth are mentioned there in verses 11 and following and don't worry we're not going to read all of that again this morning but it what it comes down to is their sin is a sin of greed and notice that this is, this is not a condemnation of wealth. Uh, you remember from Sunday school, Proverbs, they were instructed to honor the Lord with our, the money from our wealth. It's not a condemnation of wealth. 
Abraham, a very wealthy person, David, Solomon, a lot of the great heroes of the Bible were wealthy people. We see in, even in Acts, people selling their property. Having property implies some kind of wealth. They're selling their property. They're giving things to the Lord. They're being generous with their wealth. Nothing, no condemnation of wealth. It's a condemnation of greed. Verse 14 of Revelation 18, the fruit you long for has gone from you. That phrase, the fruit you long for, is literally the fruit of the desire of your soul. These people, the, the desire for money had become their soul. It's like their God. It is what they are worshiping is what the, the implication there is of that phraseology. It's not just having wealth, it's making it your God. And Jesus specifically condemns this kind of an attitude towards money in Luke 16 and verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot worship God and wealth at the same time. That is impossible for a human to do. So take your pick. You either serve and worship God or you're going to serve and worship wealth. These merchants of the earth chose to obviously not serve and worship God they're serving money instead as the desire of their soul. So these people are, are sinful. And oh, by the way, if you remember, we can throw in the nations, the ethnos from last time, the people of the world are included in this, this, these same sins for the reason for the judgment coming. Let's not just put it off on these kings and Oh, the, the Elon Musks of the tribulation period and the Joe Bidens or whoever the kings are, uh, you know, oh, they're so bad. That's why the judgment's coming. No, it's the people. <laughs> also, just the regular uh, guy and gal on the street uh, are living in sin against the Lord. And that's why the judgment is coming. But notice their reaction to the judgment. They stand at a distance. There's this great smoke and fire. Could it be a nuclear attack? Maybe. I'm not really, I'm not sure. The text doesn't say, but they're, but both of them are weeping over their loss. They both see uh, the fact that they're the kings, for example, their, their place of power their place where they can exert their authority over other people is gone. Now I can't take advantage of everything that was in that city that allowed me to be sexually immoral and to live sensuously. All that's destroyed. Now what am I going to do? How am I going to satisfy my desires? Merchants, same kind of thing. Oh, no. That's why they list all of the various uh, things that they're missing out on now. Everything that I sold, everything that, that satisfied the desire of my soul has been destroyed in this city. Now what am I going to do? 
Everything that we used to satisfy our sinful desires is now gone. And notice that they show great emotion over this. There's a lot of uh, weeping and mourning. Verse 9, the kings of the earth weep. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth weep and mourn. I mean, they are really pouring it on here. The merchants of these things, verse 15, who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear and of her torment, weeping and mourning over their great loss here. Verse 18, they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? They threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning. So there is great emotional response to this judgment that has come upon them. But there's one thing that is missing. There is absolutely no indication that they have any remorse whatsoever over the sin that they committed. They are weeping and mourning over the judgment, not the sin, not the cause of this judgment that has uh, come to the city of Babylon. And notice even there's one little phraseology or one little phrase in here that mentions the depravity of their sin. Uh, Verse 13, at the end there, it says that they were even trading in slaves and human lives. Uh, We see a lot of that. Uh, Incidentally, the issue of slavery was not finally and fully defeated in uh, the Civil War in 1865. There, by many estimates, there are more slaves in the world today than there were then, primarily in the Muslim world. And it would appear that this is going to continue. And then we see stories of human lives being traded and used, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and all of this incredible depravity that is going on in the world. It's going to continue. God is eventually going to judge it. Good news for you and me if you care about those sorts of things. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that these people show absolutely no remorse for their sin, even though they've got a lot of emotion going on there. A lot of weeping, a lot of mourning, a lot of crying, throwing dust on their heads, making an incredible show. And by all accounts, it's actual, real emotion. Although it has nothing to do with repentance. And so that's why we've entitled this, How Not to Mourn Over Sin. Or if you find yourself in in some kind of issue where someone has sinned against you and they're showing all kinds of emotion because of it, be careful. That may not be an actual indication that there's any kind of change of mind. That's what repentance actually is. And here I just threw this in for us because this is kind of a depressing (laughs) message. Revelation 18:20 Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So we spend a lot of time 
uh, studying, or not studying, but looking at articles before Sunday school. And I tell you, maybe we ought to throw one in every once in a while that's some good news, because it's pretty depressing out there. The things that are going on in the world that we need to be watching out for. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us that this is all going to be judged. It's all going to be settled. God is going to accomplish it. That's why we need to have faith in his word. Otherwise, we can just be overwhelmed by what's going on in the world. But if we have a literal understanding of a literal Babylon that is literally going to be judged, then we ought to be encouraged to serve the Lord today. So these people, these kings, merchants of the earth, these sailors and the nations themselves are weeping and crying over this city, but they're showing no change of mind. That is, there's great misunderstanding on this word repentance or repent and what it actually involves. What we are seeing here in Revelation 18 is not repentance. This is Sorrow, sorrow over being caught in your sin, sorrow over being judged because of your sin, but, but no change of mind whatsoever about the reason for the judgment or the reason for the bad circumstances that you are now facing. The term repent uh, in the Greek is metanoeo, it is, and it, it is a verb, and it means to change one's mind. Repentance is another term that we find in the scriptures. Metanoia, that is the noun form of this verb, and it refers to the act of repenting. Matthew 3.8, a good example of that. John the Baptist says, Uh, in the lead-in to Jesus' coming to the earth. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Change your mind about God and how you should be living for him and bear fruit in keeping with that change of mind. That's what John the Baptist is talking about. So what, what repentance is not? What isn't? Repentance. If you uh, find yourself caught in some kind of, of sin or you're dealing with someone in your life who is sinning against you, what, what, is re- what is not repentance necessarily? Mourning over sin. That, by definition, is not repentance. It can be a good thing. If you're a believer and you realize that you are sinning against the God who saved you, that ought to cause you to mourn. That, that definitely should cause you to be upset emotionally because you're sinning against God. You're sinning against your wife or you're sinning against your husband. That ought to cause you to be emotionally upset. But that by itself is not repentance. It's not mourning over the fact that you got caught or the fact that you're being punished. That's what these people are doing in our, in our passage in Revelation 18. They're mourning over the fact that they were punished, that there was a judgment for their sin and now they don't have their city anymore. That's not repentance. 
It's not even feeling sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry that I did that to you. Uh, It'll never happen again. I promise to never do that again. I promise to try to do better in the future. That's not repentance. All of those things are kind of are hitting around the edges of repentance. They could be the they should be the result of repentance, which is a change of mind. If these people in Revelation 18 were actually repenting or have a a, a spirit of repentance they would probably mention the sin themselves personally and confess it like David does in Psalm 51. I have sinned against you and you alone, he says to God. I have sinned against you and please forgive me of my sins. That is having a change of mind. That's what repentance is. And so there's great confusion of what repentance is in terms of salvation. Just in general, it's a change of your mind. If, say, for example, you are sinning against your wife, uh, you have a change of mind. You understand that this sin that you are committing, whatever it is, is a sin against her and a sin against God. And you understand that and you change your mind about that thing and it has an effect on you and your actions going forward. That's for just kind of everyday living. That's a good idea for you to do, to maintain relationships, not just husbands with their wives, wives with their husbands, you with your Children, your children with your parents. Parents need to be forgiven from time to time. Uh, And just in your relationships in general, keeping that open communication and forgiveness for sins and changing your mind about sin is great. In terms of salvation, eternal life with the Lord, what role does repentance play? Great confusion in that. And it primarily comes down to not understanding what the term repentance actually is. Always remember that. It's a change of mind. It is not promising to do better. It is not confessing all your sins. It is not uh, saying 10 special prayers. That is not repentance. Repentance is changing your mind about sin And in terms of eternal life or salvation, it's changing your mind about uh, sin and how to be forgiven. And this, that's where a lot of the confusion comes in is promising to never sin again, a requirement for being forgiven. No, no, it isn't A, a requirement for being forgiven is confession confessing your sin. And that term literally means to agree with God about your sin. You uh, bring your sin to the Lord and you confess it to him. You say, "I, I understand this is wrong. This is a sin against you. I confess it to you. I agree with you in your word. I am wrong. Please forgive me. That's, that's repentance being wrapped up in confession, changing your mind 
about sin and how to be forgiven. You could be under the mistaken impression that you have to belong to a certain religion or denomination in order to have eternal life. This is very common uh, misunderstanding that people have. I have to be a Catholic. I have to be a Mormon. I have to be a Muslim. I have to be a Jew. I have to be this, that, or the other thing. And everybody else is not going to have eternal life, but I am because I'm part of this chosen group of people. Wrong. (laughs) Not what the Bible says about salvation. The Bible says about salvation that any person, red and yellow, black and white, we are all precious in his sight. He died for every single one of us. He gave every single one of us the ability to believe in him. He did all the work on the cross. We simply trust in him. It does not matter what your last name is, what the color of your skin is, what church you went to your entire life last week, where, what church you're going to go to tomorrow. Christ died for you in your sins. You can only have salvation through trusting in him. So if you find yourself in that group of people who are trusting in their denomination and you hear the truth of the gospel and change your mind, that is repentance in terms of salvation. You have changed your mind about what you're trusting in and now you're trusting in Christ in the word of God. And part of that is fearing the Lord. You could find yourself as a person who is agnostic or atheistic. You're a humanist type of person. There is no God. And somebody brings the truth of the scriptures to you and you suddenly, oh, I think you're right. I'm going to change my mind about that. I understand that I have been created by the God of the universe. He died for my sins And I ought to live the way that he wants me to. That is the fear of the Lord. That is repentance. That is the changing of your mind for salvation. A change of mind is necessary. That's supposed to say, I'm not sure if it's, uh, yeah, there it is on that one. I changed the wording. A change of mind is necessary for salvation. So as long as you are Defining the terms correctly, there is nothing wrong with saying that, yes, you have to repent in order to be saved. As long as you're defining the term correctly, you change your mind from trusting in yourself, your religion, that there is no God, whatever you're trusting in, to trusting in the truth of the scriptures, that Christ died for your sins, and I believe in him, I trust in him completely for the salvation of my soul. That, that's repentance, changing your mind about what you are trusting in. And that is what these people in this passage did not do, are not doing, will not do in the future. They're upset about losing their city, Babylon, And we, as believers, ought to be upset about sinning against the God of the universe and our Savior. That is true repentance. And so with that, let's go to the Lord 
in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation that was written 2,000 years ago, but is still so pertinent for us today. I pray that you would do your work in our hearts and in our minds that needs to be done, that our hearts would be soft to you and to your word. And we just thank you for the opportunity to uh, confess our sins to you, knowing that you are just and that you are righteous and that you are faithful and that you will forgive us of our sins. I thank you so much for that precious gift so that we can live in fellowship with you. I pray that if we find ourselves in the, with the need to confess our sins to people around us, that we would have the courage to do that, that we would live for you and that we would uh, have relationships restored through the truth of, of your word and living in obedience to it. Just pray, Lord, that you would be with us as individuals as we go out from here. Help us to be lights in this dark world that so desperately needs the truth of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.